I'm going to Vietnam, to Hanoi in the near future, 27th and 28th of February, to have another summit. And hope we, hopefully, we do as well with the second summit as we did with the first. I hope so. The stage is set for the second summit between President Donald Trump and the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un. It will be the two leaders' first face-to-face -face since last June's historic meeting. Denuclearization will once again be the main topic of conversation, but has anything really changed since last year's summit, and can anything tangible come out of this one? This is TikTok. I'm David Myers. Joining me now from Andrews Air Force Base, waiting to take off with the president, is Bloomberg's White House reporter, Justin Sink. Thanks for doing this before your flight, Justin. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Set up the week for us. When are President Trump and Kim Jong-un set to meet? How are they getting there? You know, what's, what's, what to expect? Sure. So we're jumping aboard Air Force One. It'll be about a 16-hour flight. It's uh, about mid or It's around noon uh, Washington and New York time. We'll land uh, in what will be Tuesday night in Hanoi. Uh, the president's expected to go kind of back to his hotel immediately. He's got some meetings with Vietnamese officials early the next morning, and then his schedule sort of an open uh, question. Uh, neither the North Korean side nor the U.S. side has provided a lot of uh, certain guidance on when we're expecting the two leaders to meet, other than, of course, that we are expecting the two leaders to meet. Um, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un is coming in via train. Uh, we've seen images of him kind of going through China and and working his way down towards Hanoi. So uh, the two leaders are going to be converging pretty quickly there. As for the agenda, we know that they're expected to have some sort of meal together, that they're expected to have a one-on-one -on -one talk and then kind of a broader bilateral discussion that will include aids from both sides. And why Vietnam? You know, Singapore was the site of the first summit, so why did they pick Hanoi for this one? So I think it has to do a lot with what's comfortable for the North Korean side. Vietnam obviously uh, still has communist leadership, so uh, a kinship there with, with North Korea and is accessible by train. Uh, as we learned with the Singapore summit, the North Koreans needed to rely on the Chinese to provide aircraft mm. for uh, for Kim Jong-un to get to Singapore. And so I think that's created a, a situation where <clears throat> they're looking for locations that, that he might be able to travel to without having to rely on other countries. So the promise of denuclearization was the big thing to come out of the first summit in Singapore. Um, how was that defined in that agreement? And have we seen any changes from North Korea since then? So, I mean, ironically, it was not defined, and I think that is one of the big questions going into this summit, is whether North Korea and the U.S. can agree on a sort of commonly accepted definition of denuclearization. I think the U.S. has said that they hope that that will include not only a freeze and dismantling of North Korea's nuclear weapons program, but of sort of intercontinental ballistic missiles they've been developing and that can often be used to deliver nuclear weapons. So uh, getting to that just even basic definition, I think, will be part of the negotiations that, that led up to the summit and, and the work going forward. Beyond that, uh, you know, a couple of the other elements that came out of, of Singapore were the repatriation of uh, U.S. war remains from mm -hmm. the Korean War, uh, as well as sort of confidence building for North Korea. They're, they're worried, of course, going into this process that if they do denuclearize, that it could destabilize the government there. And so the U.S. has said that they're committed to helping them transition to this period and, and feel secure. And so we'll be looking, I think, at both those areas to see if there's measures that the U.S. offers 
or the North Korea that offers outside of the denuclearization process, but they can sort of lay the groundwork for a, a broader deal to come together. After the first summit, President Trump said that North Korea was, quote, no longer a threat. How accurate is that statement within the president's administration or uh, security experts? Yeah, I mean, I, I think obviously many analysts are uh, skeptical that, that North Korea is seriously committed to denuclearization. Um, uh, but the president has said, you know, he thinks that he both has a strong relationship with North Korea and that he has sort of successfully convinced them that the way to a more prosperous economy, the way to reentering the world stage is to go through this denuclearization negotiation. Um, uh, obviously, North Korea has been down this path before with prior presidents. Mm-hmm. It hasn't led to tangible results. And, and um, so I think that, that it's going to be the ultimate and real real question. And certainly there are a lot of skeptics uh, until a, a final deal that's delivered and implemented. We have a special feeling, and I think it's going to lead to something very good, and maybe not. I think ultimately it will, but maybe not. And I'm not pushing for speed, but we're not removing the sanctions. And what's uh, what's in it for North Korea when it comes to this second summit? What did they hope to achieve? Well, I think it's helpful on a couple fronts for them. One is, of course, uh, it's another chance for their leader to sit down with the president of the United States on a global stage that gets a ton of attention. That's a really legitimizing sort of diplomatic act for them. Another is that they clearly think that um, negotiating directly with President Trump can yield positive results for them. They saw in the Singapore summit that President Trump put a freeze on um, what they call war games, uh, but really sort of training drills between the the South Koreans and the U.S., uh, so that can add to their sort of security. And, uh, of course, ultimately, I think their goal here is to find a pathway forward to to lifting some of the crippling economic sanctions Mm -hmm. that have really hampered their economy. You know, something to keep an eye on this week, uh, many are saying, is an agreement by both sides to officially end the Korean War, despite the fact that that war was fought over 60 years ago. Why is that significant to this week? So I think it's uh, it's an interesting question. There's a couple answers to it. One is, of course, it would be kind of headline generating, and it would be a, a concrete sort of thing that President Trump could point to and say, hey, we've, we've accomplished uh, an important symbolic thing here. For the North Koreans, I think um, there's two reasons that it might be attractive to them. One is that it could help usher um, closer economic cooperation with South Korea. That's something that they've really coveted, and the South Korean government that's currently in uh, has also coveted. Uh, there's there's joint uh, economic projects on the border. They've worked on a, an Olympics bid together, and this could be a real way to sort of uh, underscore and solidify that. And then one thing that I think a lot of experts are wary of in terms of this possible peace declaration is that it could undermine um, the sort of justification for U.S. troops to be in South Korea. We currently have thousands of of U.S. service members stationed there. And the sort of logic for them continuing to be on the peninsula decreases if you're saying, well, the, the war between the North and the South is officially over. And so um, well, I think it would be a symbolic step that uh, a lot of people would celebrate as just a, a gesture towards peace. I think there would be a concern among some, especially in Washington and those who have been critical of President Trump's efforts here, that it could be paving the path for a withdrawal of American troops from, from South Korea, which is something that President Trump has said that he's interested in. He's said that you know he thinks that we spend way too much money protecting rich allies and, and sort of question the, the justification for it there. So it's 
an area where he and, and Chairman Kim might agree, but, but many on both sides of the aisle back in Washington do not. Besides generating a headline, like you said, does this bargaining chip play into possible denuclearization at all? Well, I, I think it's uh, it's a potential confidence-building measure. So, mm. you know, I think when sort of nuclear experts look at, at this sort of stuff, there are, there's everything outside the physical act of denuclearization, of closing down sort of pipelines for nuclear material to come in, uh, closing down reactors and, and facilities where these weapons are made, turning the, the weapons over to international inspectors or international community. Those are sort of the concrete things. But if, you know, the U.S. and North Korea are able to sit down in a room together and speak the same language and work towards common goals, you could see that helping to facilitate that broader agreement down the road. But if, you know, having a nuclear arsenal is Kim Jong-un's biggest uh, bargaining chip, why then would he give it up? I mean, that's the, the sort of million-dollar question and, and really why I think there's a lot of skepticism uh, that this effort will ultimately work out. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, North Korea is an extremely vulnerable position, and uh, there's perhaps no greater sort of guarantee of security than, than having a nuclear weapon. And so uh, the conditions and the economic pressure are really going to have to be just right for them to, mm-hmm. uh, to even consider giving it up. So while little has come from the first summit, and while expectations are low for this second summit, the strategy seems to be that talking is better than not talking. Yeah, I think that's an argument that the White House officials would certainly make, and that even uh, you know skeptics of President Trump or this process would agree with. Um, but at the same time, I think we are going to be looking in Singapore for, for or excuse me, in Hanoi for for more tangible progress here. So a real sort of roadmap for how these talks are going to continue to play out down the road, because at a certain point you have to consider the sort of alternate explanation for all this, which is that as North Korea is engaging in these talks, they're actually buying more and more time to sort of set up their nuclear weapons program Mm -hmm. and become more and more entrenched. And so uh, some sort of U.S. or other action that would try to disable their nuclear capability becomes harder and harder to do. Considering that, how do you measure success in the long run um, with these summits? Yeah, I think the real question is going to be, you know, it will be it will be nice if the two leaders come to rhetorical agreements or symbolic agreements during these talks. But what would be really interesting is if the North Koreans give up something that they have not already in terms of concrete denuclearization. And I think we'll be looking for that certainly in this one, and if it doesn't come here, a very clear roadmap and, and set of expectations for the next time that they're going to meet or for a deadline in the future, because if at some point the, the rubber doesn't meet the road, if North Korea isn't actually willing to give up these programs or is demanding uh, sanctions relief before they actually do anything, I think it, it, it really casts uh, cast doubt over this entire process. Justin, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Make sure to follow Justin and his reporting on Twitter. He's at Justin Sink. That's the TikTok for today. Thanks for listening, and please head on over to iTunes and let us know what you think. I'm David Myers. You can follow me on Twitter at David F. Myers, and you can get all your updates 24-7 at TikTok.